Welcome to Uncharted Careers. I'm Courtney Hartman, and I talk with guests each week about their career paths to give listeners an insider look into different industries, how folks have made decisions in their careers, and we'll explore what each guest has learned along the way. I'm on a mission to share knowledge that is only learned in the field outside of a classroom. Join me to find inspiration for your own career. This week, I have Erica Bach joining me to discuss earning her degree as a doctor of psychology and becoming a psychologist. Erica has been a close friend of mine for over a decade as she and I became close while studying abroad in Vienna, Austria together, and we went to college together. She's trained in psychodynamic, cognitive, behavioral, trauma-informed, and third-wave psychotherapies and recently started her own private practice. Erica takes a collaborative approach to therapy and prioritizes warmth, sensitivity, and compassion in her practice. If you are interested in learning more about Erica's practice, you can find her on Psychology Today. And if you like this episode, please give me five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. Enjoy. Today is my first day in like official full private practice. So I'm like in business mode and like putting up a website and setting up all this stuff. And it's nerve wracking, but really exciting. So I'm very grateful to be able to be in a space where I could go out on my own so early in my career. Wow. Congratulations. This is a big day. It is. And I get to start, kick it off by doing a podcast with one of my oldest friends. Uh, yeah. I'm so excited that I get to talk to you today. I know. I'm really excited that we put this on the calendar too. Yeah. So tell me more about your private practice and what that looks like right now. Yeah. So right now I am building up my caseload. I was doing it part-time before. So right now I'm sort of heavily leaning on the marketing side and getting my name out there and putting up a website and going to be reaching out to my network just to let them know that I'm, you know, available and looking for, for patients right now. Um, I see individuals and couples and my specialization is in trauma and relationships, but um, pretty comfortable with a lot of different areas like grief, anxiety, depression, OCD. Um, if you name it, I probably worked with it um, at some point throughout my career. But yeah, so I, I was at um, NYU hospital previously, and um, I just decided I wanted to be able to have a little bit more time and flexibility to be able to focus on each case and be able to, you know, think about it more as opposed to really, really busy back to back to back where you have a whole lot of breathing room. Mm -hmm. Um, So I am out uh, on my own right now and I've got, you know, some patients and and building up their practice. That's so exciting. Well, congrats again. Take me back a little bit. When did you decide to become a psychotherapist? Oh, geez. Well, um, you were in my life at that time. Um, You know, I think I, both my parents are doctors, so there was always an interest in sort of science and medicine and people. um, And I took an AP psychology class um, my senior year in high school and just fell in love with it. I was obsessed. I was so interested you know, whereas some of my other classes, I wasn't as engaged. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I went to college and I was sort of on the pre-med track and um, intended to go to medical school and sort of kept 
taking psychology classes and found myself more and more as time went along um, interested in those classes. And when I took a clinical psychology class, that sort of was, I was just so, so interested and intrigued by the material. I was like, you know what? Um, I think that this is the route that I want to take. So, you know, I um, went for my master's first, which I think if I go back in time, it's kind of just a couple extra years that I took that I didn't need to, but I kind of wanted to do a two, three-year master's just to make sure before I went full on doctorate, ended up doing both in the end, so just been in school forever. But um, yeah, I I just feel so incredibly lucky to have this as a career. I say it to people all the time. I can't believe I'm paid to do this because mm-hmm. it doesn't feel real sometimes. I just, I feel like I found my calling. Wow. What's contributing to that feeling of feel, of being so fulfilled and feeling like this is your calling? Yeah. Um, well, for one thing, I just, I find it so incredibly meaningful. It can be challenging for sure at times, you know, if I'm, I'm very empathetic. Um, I think a lot of therapists are. And so, um, you know, when I'm meeting with a patient and they're really struggling, you know, I feel it with them and that can be hard and mm-hmm. and also so meaningful, like to be alongside them as they navigate through life and being able to guide them, ask questions, have them reflect on things. Um, it's just so rewarding when you see people um, come through on the other side and, you know, it's, it's often that I feel like I can see the glimmers within them better than they can. You know, sometimes they're in a really dark place and, you know, to reflect that back to them and be like, Hey, do you even notice the progress that you've made since however many sessions ago when you were saying you really struggled with setting boundaries, for example, like that point you just made right now, that's an example. And they'll be like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's just, (laughs) it's just the most meaningful thing in the entire world. Um, I believe, you know, I went to therapy in college for the first time and I felt Mm -hmm. like it changed my life. And that was part of what set me apart from the, the med school track to pursuing psychology. Yeah. And I only know therapy from the patient side. And I can tell you also, it completely changed my life. And to be that person that is facilitating so much change and helping somebody to get to their purpose and to add meaning and more value to their life and direction and clarity, that is such incredible and important work. And I can see how fulfilling it can be for you. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, again, I pinch myself. I cannot believe, I mean, it was, took a long time and a lot of work to get here on so many hours of schoolwork, but I, yeah, I can't believe that, that I get to do this and that it's my job. And it seems like a lot of people do become therapists after they have personal experience with therapy. I know uh, my therapist came into therapy that way. And I've heard from a lot of folks that it was that work that they did in their own personal life and the value that they saw that got them into feeling really passionate about moving into that career direction. 
Yeah, that's that's so lovely to hear that that your therapist shared that with you. That's really sweet. Um, yeah, it's funny. You know, there were people in my doctoral program who were like, I've never been in therapy before. And they kind of encourage you to go to therapy just to see what it's like from the other side, too, because it's so interesting having the both sides. And right now, a couple of my patients are therapists mm-hmm. or, or in um, their own schooling right now. So it's very funny to see all of the aspects and all the facets that, that come together that way. So tell me, what sort of degree do you need in order to practice the type of therapy that you are practicing? That's a really great question. So there are several ways to go about it. You can get a doctorate, which is what I got. So that's a PhD or a PsyD, and that is five years minimum of school. That includes um, getting a master's along the way that's like built in part of your doctoral program. Um, and it requires research and a dissertation and having to defend your dissertation. Um, you don't have to do that. That's only if you want that that doctor title. You can go um, for several different kinds of master's programs that are terminal degrees, which means you can practice at the end of that master's. So there's a master's of social work. There's... Um, I, oh, I'm really, I'm going to embarrass myself that I don't know all the acronyms, but something like um, LCSW or LMFT, Licensed Mm -hmm. Marriage and Family Therapist. There are lots of different um, ways. And so that's, I believe, a two-year program. So you'll be able, you'll have like an externship and supervision. And then after two years, you can go out and practice. Um, I mean, there are people who could just say, hey, I'm a life coach and I do therapy without any training, any, and that's something that's really tough as a therapist. Um, People who aren't super educated in the area going out and positioning themselves as therapists. And so, you know, I'm often prone to say I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. So people know not only do I have the doctorate, but I've also studied for and taken the licensing exam. I just want to sort of let people know, like, I do have the training that can legitimize the type of work that I do. I, I cringe sometimes, um, about people saying, oh, you know, I see a life coach and we do therapy and they give me lots of advice. And, there are all these tropes about what therapy is. It's one of the hardest things I think about being in this field is that people believe that therapy is advice giving. They're going to show up and say, hey, this is, um, you know, this issue I have, like, what do I do? And and yeah. I, I'd i be curious to hear what you think too, but I don't think that therapy is about telling someone what to do. It's about asking the right questions to help them come to those answers themselves. Mm-hmm. Um So, yeah, I feel like I got off topic a little bit, but there are, you know, several different titles you can have, ways about going about being a therapist, but there is differences in like social worker versus psychologist. Psychologists all have to learn how to do assessments. Like if you wanted to be tested for ADHD, right, it's only a psychologist that can actually do that testing, for example. Oh, okay. And I also like to say that I cannot prescribe medication. Um, yeah. That's a psychiatrist. So a psychiatrist goes to medical school and they learn some about talk therapy um, and they mainly deal with medication management. Mm-hmm. I cannot prescribe medication. It's all talk therapy. Gotcha. And I know that there are so many different types of therapy out there, like EMDR, I've heard a lot about recently. Do you learn about all those different styles when you're getting your doctorate? 
great question. Um, it depends upon the doctorate. I would say that there are more basic foundational types of therapy um, that people are taught in their doctoral program. It really depends upon the program. My program, I went to FERCOF, which is a subsidiary of the Shiba University. They have the options to learn um, CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. I think that's a, a big one people have learned about um, more recently, and also psychodynamic therapy, which is a bit more like it, it originates with Freud and the idea of like exploring childhood. It's more interpretation-based. CBT is a bit more behavioral. Um, and I was lucky enough to learn both. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yes, you can specialize and learn more later on. So as I am a trauma therapist and um, you can go on to do externships, for example, my internship, which is kind of what our residency is called. Mm -hmm. um, I was at the New Jersey VA. So I was working with veterans with PTSD a lot of the time. Um, and there are lots of different trauma-informed therapies like EMDR, mm -hmm. CPT, which is cognitive um, processing therapy. There's PE, which is prolonged exposure, which I learn and, and help combat veterans sort of overcome. It, it really depends what someone comes to you with. I think it's mm -hmm. important not to be super diehard in any one camp. The way that I like to operate is to, luckily I have training in a lot of different kinds of therapy to really mm -hmm. ask someone, what are you coming in for? And how are you hoping to get to where you want to go? Mm -hmm. And being able to tailor treatment to the person who's in front of you instead of saying, hey, I don't really care what you're coming in for. You're going to fit into this box and let's hope to get the best results. I don't think that that's the best way to go. I think it's important to be flexible and adaptable with, with how you treat the people who are coming in. Yeah. And I think for you as a therapist, you do just have more flexibility in your practice and in your therapy when you're trained in so many different ways and you can be open as opposed to coming in with having a plan already kind of set for somebody. Um, so it seems like your education and all of your experience is just going to contribute to you being super successful in the private practice side of things. I appreciate that. That's the hope. And, you know, I'm, I'm always wanting to learn more. I have like a bunch of different kinds of trainings that I'm planning on doing soon. That's what's so fun about this field is that you're never done learning. There's always yeah. new therapies coming out that you can go out and get trained in and develop new skills for your tool belt so that you can, like I said, it's really important, I think, to meet someone where they are and give them the tools and skills that they need. Yeah, for sure. Outside of the title doctorate, what what is the and the experience that you get while you're in school for five years and learning about different types of therapy and approaches and you write a dissertation and defend it? Is there a monetary value to going and getting a doctorate? For example, are you able to charge significantly higher rates per hour for your therapy because of your doctorate degree? Yes, I would say that that is that is something that it that is an outcome of the doctoral degree. It's kind of like if you went to a physician's assistant versus like a board certified surgeon, like they might both have the same skills and the same ability. It's just kind of putting more faith, I guess, in the education part and the training part. Yeah. Um, you know, I also did a postdoctoral fellowship. So it's like there, there, you know, there's, it's funny being on this side and 
barely being like, oh, I, I just started working, quote unquote, and yet I've had a million years of school and training and clinical training along the way. Yes, there's definitely a significant difference in what people charge. And it's funny, too, because the cost of the program is very different, too, right? Like, it's, I think it's similar to medical school. Somewhere between doctoral programs can somewhere between a hundred and three hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars to complete the program. I'm not sure what a what a master's program costs, but I'm assuming much less. So it's kind of this idea mm-hmm. of like, do you stay in for longer um, in the hopes of of charging more on the other side, or do you decide to end sooner and begin being able to make money and charge? Although I will say I don't know many people who go into this field who are very motivated by money, I think we would all choose something different if that was the end goal um, in terms of what's most important in a career. Tell me more about the fellowship that you had. What did that entail? Yeah. So um, you don't have to do um, a postdoc if you don't want. Essentially, it's so complicated and it's funny when I have to sit down and explain this to everyone. But in order to be licensed, which means you can see patients without required supervision mm-hmm. after your internship year. So the end of your residency, technically you're done with your whole doctorate. That residency is included in the doctorate. You are required to do one more year of supervised work. Okay. So some people just start off at a job right away. Like I know friends who went to a VA and it was just built into their work that they would be supervised at least two hours a week. Other people go to fellowship training for additional training, you know, more education, and obviously that supervision is built in. Um, I decided to go do my fellowship at Columbia. Um, I was in their counseling and psychological services um, position. There were a lot of psychologists. I want to say 50 five psychologists, something like 10 psychiatrists. It was a huge program, always looking for more. I mean, we were seeing um, students at the Columbia undergrad and all of the graduate schools, except for the medical school, they had their own um, counseling center. So that was a wild experience. I learned so much. We had so much supervision. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because when I I was going from a VA and I was thinking, oh, I'm going to this, you know, elite university where all the kids are going to be super high functioning. I expected to kind of see a lot of patients who were just, or students rather, um, who were just, you know, very worried about getting straight A's kind of thing. And I was thinking, I'm coming from a VA, people who have like trauma from being in combat. This is going to be a breeze. And I think it was the most challenging um, clinical experience I've ever had. I was so surprised to see how much the students were struggling with and still functioning at Mm. an Ivy League university, you name it, alcoholism, schizophrenia, bipolar, abusive relationships, everything. Um, And it was super intense, super high demand. You know, the students were coming in in droves. They couldn't hire people fast enough. So I feel super grateful for that experience because I feel well-equipped to kind of handle anything that comes through the door because we were seeing five to seven intakes a week. Like you were just seeing so many people trying to figure out where the best place was for them, trying to see them meet their needs in as quickly as possible. You know, it was just, it was really fast paced. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I learned so much from it. Um, 
So that, that was a great experience. And I met so many great students and so many great colleagues there too. Yeah. Do you continue to stay in touch with those folks that you've worked out with the VA experience and at Columbia? You mean my, my colleagues and my supervisors? Yeah. Yeah, I do. It's, it's a really lovely job in that it's personal too. Like, you know, when I'm with a patient, I'm learning something about myself too. Like if Mm -hmm. I feel super reactive to a certain topic or something, it's, that's part of why it's so important to be in your own therapy is to know yourself well enough. Cause maybe there are certain populations that you will not feel like you could work with. For example, you know, a classic example is if someone dealt with addiction in their own family, like if their parents were um, alcohol or drug addicts, they might have a lot of trouble working objectively with a patient who comes in who deals with alcohol and drug addiction. So it's just, it's all important to know yourself well and to be in supervision and work with my, you know, supervisors, they're some of the most formative people in my career. They challenged me to be like, well, how are you feeling in the room? And like, what could you have done differently? You know, they pushed me professionally and personally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know a lot of people who say that about their jobs. And um, I think we could all feel really lucky for those experiences. And yes, we keep in touch and not as much as I would like to, you know, I miss being able to see them once multiple times a week to be like, not only are these the things going on with my cases, but this is how my experience impacts and let's untangle that. It almost feels like free therapy in a way too in the professional development. Yeah. I was wondering because I wasn't sure if there was any sort of requirement as a practicing clinician or a therapist to have professional supervisors or mentors or somebody that you can go to to advise you as you are treating clients. Yes. So it's required up until you're licensed. And so you're, you're required to do tons of hours of clinical Um, work and you have a lot of supervision that's baked into that. And then once you go ahead and study for and take the licensing exam, you're not required to see supervision. And yet I, I can't imagine not having at least a peer supervision group. I have good friends who are specialists in different areas. I'll say, Hey, one of my patients was bringing up um, you know, their, their kid. And, and this is the dynamic between them. Like I have a friend who's an expert in parenting and child relationships. And I'll be like, can we just jump on the phone? I'd love to pick your brain about it. Or yeah. all friends call me about trauma and relationship stuff. It's just, we're always learning and asking each other to, I think it would be foolish to believe that you never needed additional consultation mm-hmm. or supervision. I would be very wary of a therapist who felt like they didn't need to keep growing um, and getting other opinions and being challenged too. Yeah, as would I. How are you marketing yourself now that you're looking to bring on patients and have your own private practice? Psychology Today is probably the uh, biggest directory. I think people with therapists and without have heard of Psychology Today. I actually just had a friend be like, do you guys market yourself on ZocDoc? I want to try to find a therapist. And I was like, uh, I know very few psychologists who are on ZocTalk. I suggest you go to Psychology Today. Um, my friend also is on um, a directory called My Wellbeing. So I just joined that and have had some pretty good success pretty early on nice. there as well. And then 
I think a lot of it is just word of mouth and getting your name out there. You know, I just had an old colleague reach out to me and ask me if I see couples because she has a patient who's looking to get into couples therapy. And I was like, yes, I do. So it's just kind of people that you know and trust. And like, for example, I have a lot of friends in the field who I really trust in certain areas that I've referred other friends to. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting thing is you don't want to refer someone who then you think that person's going to run into them at a party. So it has to have some kind of degree of separation and a lot of referrals through friends and passing people along that way based on expertise and what you think might be a good fit is a really great way to build your business. Yeah. I think the therapist also determining if a patient is a good fit for them is not something that I really thought about until I started to look for a therapist. And mm-hmm. I realized that my connection with my therapist makes the therapy so much more powerful and so much more meaningful for me. So I'm curious, what does the vetting process look like on your end when you have an initial consultation with somebody that inquired to work with you? Such a great question. And I'm so glad to hear that you feel that bond with your therapist. I do want to say research shows actually that the single greatest determinant for positive outcome in therapy is the therapeutic relationship Mm -hmm. above and beyond expertise, above and beyond anything else. It's really that bond that you feel and the alliance that you feel therapist to patient that determines outcomes. So so glad to hear that you feel, um, close to your therapist. That's so important. Um, So when someone calls me for a consultation, I ask them a little bit about what's going on for them and what brings them in. And I'll ask follow-up questions. So for example, um, if I find out that someone is struggling really badly with um, addiction, that's not a pl- that's not a place where I feel super well versed in. So then I'm going to say, "Hey, I'm so glad that you shared that with me, and I'm so glad that you reached out for help." I'm going to be totally honest with you. I'm not going to take on your case um, just because like this is a business transaction. It's not just that. It's about fit. And so, you know, I have a couple of colleagues I really trust who I think might be a better fit for you. Is it okay if I send their contact information along to you? So if someone says to me that um, they're struggling with, with an area that I don't feel really competent in, and that's unethical on one level, and B, I just don't think it's, I don't think it's fair. Um, So I will tell them, I don't think this is a great fit. And I'd love to direct you in the way of someone who might be a better fit for you. Um, If someone does feel like they're talking about things that I feel pretty comfortable with, I'll ask follow-up questions to better understand. And then I'll tell them a little bit about my expertise and what I, you know, if I've worked with something similar, kind of the way that I work. And if they want to ask me any questions, then we kind of determine it that way. It feels like a good fit on both sides. You can move forward. And I always tell patients, you are never locked in with anyone. Don't stay just because you feel like you have to. If you're getting a feeling like, I'm not comfortable. I don't feel safe opening up or this person's rubbing me the wrong way. Just tell them that you'd like to, you know, you'd like to go elsewhere. And every therapist should understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like also the therapist would probably see the challenge and the struggle that they're not getting anywhere also with the patient when it's just not a great fit. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes people just don't click. It's like with dating, you know, Some, <laughs> it's not necessarily that one person has any sort of flaws or anything. It's just, it's about fit and connection, which is, Mm -hmm. it's funny because people, it's an art and a science, right? Like, yes, we're 
doctors or some of us are doctors and yet it's not a like, well, I'm the best, um, you know, orthopedic surgeon in the Northeast. So everyone who comes to me is going to have a great experience. It really is about personality fit. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. With everything that you've learned over the past 15 years working Mm -hmm. towards building your own practice, taking on patients in this way, what's something that you wish you learned earlier on in the process? Ooh, that's a great question. I think if I could go back in time, I would tell myself to focus more on learning than trying to get it right. Mm -hmm. Especially, you know, in whatever college, master's programs, doctoral programs, I think you could imagine anyone who goes through a doctoral program is going to be pretty type A, maybe a little bit perfectionistic, (laughs) um, wanting to get things right, focusing on grades. And at the end of the day, we're not dealing with grades and papers, we're dealing with people. Mm -hmm. And so if I could talk to myself as I was going into my master's program, I'd be like, take any class that is interesting to you. Try to work with populations that get you out of your comfort zone. Try to soak in the experience from everyone around you. You're going to have supervisors that are going to be super hard on you. You're going to have supervisors that are going to be super supportive and feeling like they're really building you up. And you have something to learn from everyone. Yeah. For sure. I feel like I learn things from my patients and I'll tell them that sometimes and they seem so shocked. It's like I'll hear like this nugget of wisdom that they come to and I'm like, that's so great. Do I have your permission to share that with the rest of my patients? And they they seem so shocked, but it's a relationship. It's not like I'm coming in as this all knowing being and I know it all. I'm a person too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell me more about the challenges and the struggles that you experience being a clinician. There's, there's a lot. Um, like I said, I'm super empathetic. So, you know, when I'm on session with someone who's really struggling, I feel it. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling it with them. So, yeah, one of the challenges just can be when I really, really feel for someone. Like, I have cried with patients before. You know, I really learn them and their stories and their feelings. And when they're crying, like I'm there with them. Um, luckily over time, I feel, as I've been told by many supervisors, you build a muscle to be able to like be there with it, but it's not like destroying you afterwards. I mean, my first externship at a VA, like five years ago, I used to go home and cry afterwards just because of the intensity of the traumatic material. Now I am for the most part able to leave it like I'm holding it in the session with them. And when they leave, I'm able to kind of keep it there. That's gotten a lot easier over time. Um, I think something that feels challenging is when um, the patients start to feel stuck at some points and kind of looking to me for answers of like, how can we, how can I get away from this? Or how can I make a change like right now? And it's like, I get it. And I wish I could wave a magic wand and this would be all fixed overnight. And I think that's a lot of people who come to me, you know, I'm licensed in New York. It's a lot of New York minded people who are very go, go, go achievement oriented, driven and wanting to see that kind of process happening in therapy quickly 
And a lot of times, you know, they're disappointed to realize that we have to slow down and we have to meet them where they are and kind of work on acceptance and compassion as opposed to this sort of self-criticism and moving things along faster. Um, So that's that's hard to kind of, um, you know, not give people what they want. And of course, they want things to move really fast. Who wouldn't? And and, you know, it's if we're having to unlearn things that are decades ingrained into our bodies, it takes time sometimes. Do you feel like you're having to get past a lot of skepticism when you take on a new patient or even an existing patient that does get kind of stuck or feeling like they're stuck in their life? Like Mm. if they're looking to you for advice and, you know, that's not the approach that a therapist takes, does it feel like you're being met with some skepticism in those cases that you're having to move past? Yeah. I mean, I would say at this point, Point, I'm not necessarily hearing from people unless they are leaning in and reaching out for help. I'm not yeah. necessarily seeing people who are like being mandated for treatment. You know, right. I've had those experiences before where people are kind of there against their will. And in those cases, there's so much resistance, yeah. so much skepticism. Like, I don't want to be here. I'm court mandated or my family's mm-hmm. forcing me to be here. What the heck? And it really is you get out of it what you put into it. And I'm sure you've yeah. experienced that personally, right? Like there have been times in my life when I've been in therapy and kind of see something, but don't totally see it. And then there are times where I just feel ready Mm -hmm. to see something, make a change, really get what's going on. Um, So I wouldn't say it's so much skepticism towards me, but there's definitely resistance is something that I work a lot with. It's hard to make change. And a lot of times people have these narratives in their mind about who they are or what what they can be and it it's it's almost like helping them to um work on that within themselves i don't often feel the combative combativeness towards me but it definitely happens especially in couples therapy it's emotional and it can be volatile and i have to get in there between them and sometimes you know i'll get snapped at and that's normal it, it's it's funny, you don't take it personally because it's just kind of, you expect it as part of the work. It's like, it's not personal. It's they're they're doing hard work. And so anything that they come with is normal and to be expected. It sounds like you've been able to build really good boundaries. And I'm curious, do you think that comes from just getting the reps in and having so much experience at this point that you are able to not take it personally and not bring the trauma and experience that you're hearing home with you and into your personal life. I love that you said getting the reps in and with your permission, I'm going to use that in some <laughs> sessions going forward. <laughs> Seriously. Go I love that. Follow <laughs> I appreciate <yours>. that. <laughs> um, it's, it's definitely a work in progress. Like I said, I, I think my issue or the greatest thing that I've always had to work on is feeling so emotionally attached and feeling like I, you know, say the image of like a patient feels like they're drowning in the deep end. Earlier on, I felt like I was just getting into the water with them and kind of drowning with them. Yeah. Because I was like, I feel what they're going through so much that I feel the same way they do. Mm-hmm. That's empathy, right? As opposed to sympathy of standing outside the pool and being like, poor you, that sucks. Yeah. And throughout supervision, because I've had such 
great training over the years. They've taught me how to, you know, be sitting on the edge of the pool with my legs in the water. So it's like, I'm here with you. And whenever we can stay here as long as you need to, and I'm going to be here and I'm feeling it with you. And when you're ready, I'm here with my hand out for you to grab it. And we can sit on the side of the pool together. And then it's important for me to realize I'm a separate being, even though I'm with, I can't help them if I'm drowning too. Mm -hmm. So developing that emotional boundary has been probably the most important thing for me as a psychologist and learning how to feel with someone like their trauma, the things I have heard (laughs) um, in terms of traumatic material, you know, people always say to me, how do you do it? I don't think I could do it. And it's like, early on, I don't, I didn't feel like I could do it either. Mm -hmm. And yet it was so meaningful that I knew it was worth continuing to show up that if there's meaning to the emotional pain that you're feeling, it, it's, it provides an opportunity for growth and fulfillment. So it's not like I'm doing it as a masochist, although people joke (laughs) that therapists are masochists and maybe we are a little bit, Um, but there's a purpose. Yeah. I love that visual of sitting by the pool with your feet in and, you know, enough space to help them out of the pool when they're ready. I think that's a really beautiful metaphor. Thank you. I'm big on imagery. I think it's really helpful sometimes to put a visual to some of the things that we're going through. Yeah, I agree. Well, tell me more about building your own business. Are you provided with tools or classes or anything but during any of your programs that you've done that help you to learn how to build your own business? Or has it been a lot of learning from people that have already done it and Googling and whatnot? What has that been looking like? Yeah, absolutely no help along the way. <laughs> okay. Because, you know, I think a lot of it's funny because if I'm in a doctoral program, my professors are people who maybe they have a private practice on the side, but they're academics, right? Mm-hmm. They're researchers. They're they're running a research lab. Or if I'm at a hospital, if I'm, you know, which, where you get a lot of your externships, so that's those clinical years of your doing or training, they're working at big hospitals, Mount Sinai, um, NYU Langone, things like that. Those are not typically people who are in the business full time. Yeah. So yeah. it really... Not that you're discouraged from going into private practice, but certainly when people are interviewing like, hey, why do you want to come to our residency? Where do you see yourself in five years? I don't know that they want to hear, oh, I want to be living my casual life in private practice where I'm seeing however many patients and seeing who I want. It's the answer they're looking for is kind of like, I want to see severe and persistent mental illness in hospitals and be working in these places for the rest of my life, or that's kind of the impression that we got. So yeah, there was no guidance mm-hmm. really. So it's a lot of, luckily I have friends and colleagues who are in private practice full time who've been so wonderful about helping me. And interestingly, I'm kind of on the earlier side of doing this too. And so I will certainly be helping friends and colleagues who want to go into private practice. Cause I'll be like, I just went through this. Let me tell you everything you need to do. Cause there is a yeah. lot. It's not just the business and marketing, but it's, the licensing and where else do you get licensed? And if you're going to, you know, file for a PLLC, how are you going to do that? And meeting with business attorneys, it's, there, it is a bit more in depth and I think seems more intimidating than it needs to be. <laughs> yeah. What kind of insurance do you need in private practice? Um, personally? Yeah. 
So you need malpractice insurance so that if anyone were to ever sue you for something ethical that you, uh, unethical, right, um, that you would be covered. Um, And then you need your own health insurance. And that's tough too, because you're not at a big institution providing you health insurance, like through HR, you have to have your own. So that's a big expense. Right. Do you have a website now? If people wanted to go and find you, what's the best place to look up your information and connect with you? That's a really great question. And funny enough, I was working on it before this podcast, and I'll continue working on it after it. Um, I think for right now, it's going to be DrErikaBach.com, D-R-E-R-I-K-A-B-A-C-H.com, but also just Mostly you can find me by Googling me, Erica Box ID, my psychology today, or my well-being will come up or my LinkedIn, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, that's E-R-I-K-A-B-A-C-H and then PsyD. So that's my doctorate of psychology, P-S-Y-D. Perfect. Well, I'll link to all of that in the show notes for anybody that does want to get in touch with Erica. One last question. Uh, What advice do you have for somebody who is maybe a little bit early in their career or younger and they're considering making a career path into a therapist? Oof, that's such a good question. Let me think about that for a second. There's so much I want to say. My best advice is to not doubt yourself too much. I think that a lot of people in this field, you hear the term imposter syndrome all the time. And I think there's a lot of people who are very conscientious. I think the type of person who becomes a therapist is very um, self-reflective and that can be a great, great thing. And also if you do too much of it, you can begin to question yourself a little bit. So it's important to surround yourself by people who are going to build you up and champion you and support you. I would not have gotten through my doctoral program without the support and love and just the humor of my cohort and my family and my friends, just because it can be really tough and it can be tough along the way too. So just to have someone to keep you level or to get out of your feelings a little bit and be a normal human being on the streets, go to a restaurant, eat some good food, do some fun things. Um, I think it's so important not to get too consumed. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like that support network is so important, especially in your line of work and having those mentors and supervisors and then just your uh, personal network of friends and family. It seems like that has allowed you to move forward and not doubt yourself all too much. And I think that there is a lot to say for somebody who does like to learn so much. And, uh, you know, it can be hard to take that step to actually start taking on patients yourself because you want to continue to learn and be, you know, as much as you can for the clients that you are working with. But um, I think the term is paralysis by analysis. And sometimes you need to just, yeah, yeah, embark in the actions and see um, where it takes you. And so much is learned by just, you know, taking the actions and doing the tasks and moving forward and having the conversations. Absolutely. And you are a perfect example of that. You've been talking about launching some career related mm-hmm. career for a long time and now you're doing it and you're, you're an example of that and it's inspiring to see. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. 
I definitely thought about it for way longer than I've actually been doing it so far. As we all do. We all do that. Well, here you are. You're you're embarking by action, which I love. I'm going to steal that too with your permission. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. It's yours. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Erica. This was such a good conversation. I learned so much. Of course. I love this. This was so fun. Thanks for all the thoughtful questions. Yeah, absolutely. Go to unchartedcareers.com if you're interested in one-on-one career coaching or are looking to learn more about uncharted careers and my coaching approach. Thanks for listening.